It's Black Magic Week camera through post at nofilmschool.com. Head over to the website. You will find a ton of content about Black Magic design and their technology. Today, my guest on the podcast, David Stump, has been a visual effects supervisor, editor, director of photography for a long time. And he has stories about working on some of the biggest visual effects movies of my lifetime, which is a long time. It includes some real turning points, stuff like Stargate, Mars Attacks, all the way through the X-Men movies, into more recent projects like The Morning Show on Apple. He has done a lot of stuff with a lot of different kinds of tech, dating back to when you were still using models and blue screens. But he's also been at the forefront of the shift to the digital medium. And he's going to talk to us about how he's collaborated with companies like Blackmagic, but other camera companies as well and other tech companies to develop the tech that you're using. He has insight into how we got here and where we're going next. So listen up. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing this. Why don't we start with my first question usually, and I'm, and I'm curious in your instance, of course, is what, where did your career really begin or what, what made you decide to get into visual effects and cinematography and the film business? Interesting question. I began my career in the late 70s when I was apprenticed to a British director named Clive Donner on a show called Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen, uh, roughly 1979. And I worked on that through its completion. I continued to work for him for a while until the show was over. And then uh, I went to work at Zoetrope Studios, working as one of the underlings for Francis Coppola. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Zoetrope yeah. is legendary. Who, wh- what was going on at Zoetrope at the time? I came in at the tail end of One from the Heart. I was assigned to work on Hammett. I did some work subsequently on Rumblefish. And I stayed with the studio until Francis closed it and moved to Napa with the entire operation. And And what were you doing primarily when you were there? Francis had a group of us that he called the Zoetrope guys. You know? (laughs) It was a non-union shop, and Francis would say, take this camera and go over and shoot some inserts of a typewriter. Or on some shows, I would he would say, you know, the accounting department needs somebody to check this paperwork from construction. Or we're between shows. Go work for Ben Coet, the studio manager, and help him write contracts for rental clients. It was basically whatever the boss said, you went and did it, and you learned a lot about a lot of different aspects of the business. So a little bit of everything, just getting exposed to a bunch of different things, and then you came out of that and had this had a, had a feel for VFX and cinematography. What kind of came first? Well, I had been shooting while I was working for Francis, and most of what I did was, you know, shooting stuff, you know, working with a second unit or working with a third unit or more often working with a splinter unit. I had a couple of mentors working for Francis, principally 
Phil Lathrop, ASC, mentored me for a long time. He came in and shot the completion of Hammett, and he was a cinematographer who went way back in the industry. He shot Pink Panther, mm. and he shot the Peter Gunn TV series, and he oh, was, cool. you know, he went way back to the black and white days. So I learned a lot of my lighting chops from him. I learned how to, to work with hard light. And at the same time, Vittorio Storaro was in the studio, and uh, he was the king of soft, beautiful, sculpted light. And yeah. I, I, got to watch, I got to watch both of these masters exercise their craft, and it was uh, great good fun. Yeah, and then you, so you took that and you started, you started doing a lot of effects photography, right? That's well, what I there was your- there was a period when there was a period when, uh, as Francis was shutting down the studio and moving to Napa with the entire operation, all of us, the Zoetrope guys who had been loyal and hardworking for Francis, they they had uh, a man named Alex Carter who was our HR guy who set about placing us at different places in Hollywood. And because I had shown such an aptitude with cameras and with visual effects and an understanding of what visual effects were on shows like Rumblefish, where we did rear projection, Hmm. I got placed at a visual effects house over in North Hollywood, where I worked for, I think, three or four years doing visual effects for, you know, contracts for different shows. I worked on a television movie of the week series called The Day After, which won an Emmy Award for its VFX. Uh, And it was a show about a nuclear holocaust, you know, an all-out war between Russia and the Americans, nuclear war. It was so successful and so impactful that after the series, the miniseries that aired for three nights, after the last episode of it, there was a a panel of distinguished experts on the subjects who, uh, you know, included, I think, uh, Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski. (laughs) So it it was a pretty big deal at the time. Yeah. One of my shots was on the cover of the of uh, Newsweek magazine, which was wow, yeah, pretty cool for a young guy like me. And the visual effects world at the time, for those listening, was completely different than it is now. And you've been a part of the sea change that's happened there, uh, and in cinematography, obviously. But but that was tell us, can you tell us a little bit about what visual effects meant at that time? Because it's very different than what people think. Well, it was completely analog. We had motion control, and we had com- computers to do some things. But, like, for example, uh, the nuclear bomb clouds for the day after were all shot on film in a water tank upside down at 144 frames per second with a film, you know, film camera. And we used computers to sequence the cloud generator that we had built to eject those bomb clouds in a solution of red dye mm. in a in a like a 500 gallon water tank against a blue screen 
Amazing. And then we, you know, <laughs> it's such a big process. How much testing did, would go into something like that? And just so everyone's clear, the computer had nothing to do with anything aside from creating the practical effect. It was not the computer was not involved in the finishing of the visual. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was. <laughs> I just a, want to make sure it was just a can, timing sequencer for right. all of the relays and solenoids that that tripped the bomb cloud. You know, it was all traditional blue screen compositing from photography. Was it a lot of testing involved to get there? And this is, you know, ILM starting to do these things as well around that time, right? Right. And there was an enormous amount of testing. And in fact, we we engaged a physics fellow from Princeton University who came out and explained to us what the different components were in the machinery that we would need to generate these clouds. It's uh, As it turns out, a nuclear bomb cloud is called a laminar ring cloud and hmm. dan uh, i think his name was dan nosenchuk was a physics fellow who was an expert in generating these clouds and and understood what the physics were in them so he guided us to to build the machine and then we tested for weeks and weeks and weeks and then we shot for weeks and weeks and weeks it was kind of a a process that i called error and trial <laughs> <laughs> error coming first is that the <laughs> yes <laughs> so i mean it just i have so many thoughts about that just because it's such a cool you know it, the i think that the quality of effects w- was was really interesting when it was done that way and it required that kind of intelligence and planning and craft and but patience so that, and patience and error and trial <laughs> and then but from there you, it seems like that's kind of things took off in terms of a bunch of big, big projects that you were doing visual effects photography on. Yeah, it kind of surprised me how quickly my career took off in that respect. And, and, you know, I did a variety of movies. I did uh, pieces of... Beetlejuice, Rambo. Yeah, Beetlejuice, Rambo. Yeah, oh my God. You know, starting with... Uh, goofy shows like Ice Pirates, which I got involved in because I knew about rear projection from working with uh, Francis right. Coppola. And we did all of these sci-fi spaceship backgrounds for that and projected them. And, uh, you know, I did pieces for goofy movies like Jaws 3D and uh, right. The Man Who Wasn't There in 3D. And then uh, I went on to do things like, uh, you know, effects for Beetlejuice uh, adventures in babysitting. And you worked on some, I mean, like getting to some, a little bit later on, like Stargate, which is something where, again, you, you worked on, this is like those early nineties, mid nineties, when there started to be some presence of digital technology and and visual effects, right? It started to merge a little bit. Yeah. It headed toward merging then, but I think my, my first experience with any kind of digital imaging technology was on a show called Ice Pirates, where we did spaceship photography with models and motion control, but where we used star fields and star skies that Hmm. were generated by digital productions on computers. So it was interesting, you know, in the early eighties, a hybrid show. It's kind of where, what sparked my interest in what in the world is this digital stuff that, you know, how are they creating these images? And where did you fall? I I do want to mention also, I just love talking about it. So back then 
the the way you did models, Star Wars did this too, right? The model was still, the camera was moving, right? That's how it was done. Well, can you explain the, model, to us? the model was partly moving and the camera was certainly moving. So, Can you, you tell us why and how the two things went together? Because now I don't think anyone sees it. Nobody knows that necessarily that that's how that was all done. It basically became sort of a an exercise in the mental ability of a camera person to understand spatial relations in objects. So, mm. you know, if you wanted to photograph, for example, a spaceship flying towards camera and flying by it, most often you would put the the model on a pylon out in front of a blue screen at the end of a track, and you would break apart component motion so that a model mover pitch rolled and yawed the model. And then the the camera on a track would fly towards the spaceship and past it. Mm. And the net result on film was that it looked like the spaceship was traveling. And, uh, you know, the depth cues of whatever background you put it in would give it that sense of motion. But you had to be able to, uh, as a camera person, you had to be able to conceive that and program a computer with all of those axes to give you the desired effect. And then we would shoot motion tests on black and white high contrast film that we would develop ourselves in a little machine called a ProStar. And uh, we would sit on a camera, a moviola, and watch those run back and see how they looked with the background. And very frequently, you would shoot a black and white of the background as well, and you would run both of them together mm. in a in a chem or a moviola as a bipack and see the net result. That is really cool. And then that would dictate, okay, here's what we need to adjust. You would start to get a feel for, as you were shooting it, what the end result would look like. Right. And then you go back out and modify the program, reshoot it again. And then when you had a, all of the component motions agreeing with what the shot needed to be, then you'd start working in color film and doing multiple passes. So you'd do passes for mats, you would do passes for lights, you would do beauty passes, you would do you know reflection passes or sheen passes sometimes. Right. Uh, it was multi-pass photography, and a motion control system could repeat the same motion precisely and exactly over and over and over again all day. Right. That's right. That's why. Got it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So going back to digital, the, so, so we can get forward to sort of where we are now, obviously we're going to be, <laughs> there's a lot in between, but where you started seeing on Ice Pirates, the generation of those star fields sort of piqued curiosity about what this creation of digital assets were, I guess we can say. And then you go forward and, and as we get into the mid-90s, it starts to become more, more commonplace. When did you start really working with digital effects in the digital medium? Goodness, uh, we did a lot of hybrid work at Apogee Productions, which was the, the company in Van Nuys that was essentially half of ILM, the half that didn't move to Northern California. The half that remained behind in LA was called Apogee Productions. And mm-hmm. I, I worked there as a, a stage camera guy for years. And we would do things where we would hybrid between this part will be CG and that will that part will be live action and the other part will be motion control and effects photography. And we would mix all of the different formats and media. But once uh, you know, once Apogee started to wind down and, and they closed that business, I went to work at other places like VIFX down in Marina Del Rey, who had a largely digital pipeline. And I became even more conversant with the, uh, hmm. the hybrid between film and digital. And then in... I might be jumping ahead for you, but then in the, okay. <laughs> in the transition from the 90s to the 2000s, we started seeing digital cameras that yeah, were... Per- that's where, yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go too, was like talking about when you started seeing them and when you started realizing what the potential was. Well, when I first started seeing them, I was fully accustomed to fairly good you know, CG and really good film cameras. And the, the first few cameras that came out that purported to be for digital cinematography were really kind of not up to snuff. They were, they were pretty inferior to the task. But I could see also that at the same time that was happening, that progress was very slow. The progress thereafter in projecting images digitally was very rapid and very high quality. And it occurred to me that if if they're getting this far this fast with digital projection, it's only a matter of time before the cameras catch up. And I decided that I would start looking at, at cameras interacting with the makers of the cameras, telling them what I thought I liked about them or didn't like about them, because I figured it's my career. I'm either driving this bus or I'm under its wheels. (laughs) And can you tell me what some of the things were like that you thought, okay, this is where I see it. This is what I don't like. Like once you started saying, I'm going to drive the bus, what were the main goals you had in mind? Well, there were things like the the original digital camera that that 
was sold as a digital cinematography camera was the Sony F900. And the 900 had a lot of flaws, at least for, for my purposes, for doing visual effects and digital, you know, motion picture cinematography. It, it was a Rec. 709 camera. It was very low bit depth. It had a, you know, Rec. 709 encoding curve that lost a lot in the highlights and lost a lot in the blacks. It was a, I think, yeah, 1280 by, no, 1440 by 1080 picture. Uh, uh-huh. 1440 wide by 1080 with non-square pixels that after it was recorded, it could output as 1920 by 1080 HD. But the recorded pixels were expanded horizontally to fill 1920 pixels in the, in the picture output. And uh, you could just see the aliasing all over it. And the HD cam recording system was highly compressed and in addition to that the camera had a a pretty aggressive sharpening filter that was intended to make it look excessively sharp so that it gave one the the appearance that it could compete with film but it was a false it was a false economy because ultimately mm. that sharpening circuit when used to shoot a blue screen shot or a green screen shot created pretty much an automatic matte line in the picture so i started to i started to gripe at, at the camera and a lot of people started to gripe about the camera sony improved it into the f950 and about that same time, I became a member of the American Society of Cinematographers, where I was assigned to be the head of the camera committee. Hmm. And as the head of the camera committee, I now had a, a, a bigger gavel to sit down with the <laughs> manufacturing community and say, what can we do to improve these things? Because if we're going to use them for cinematography for widescreen motion pictures they've got to get better yeah and during that period i worked consulting with sony on the f23 and the subsequent f35 with panavision on the genesis with red on the red one with panasonic on their vericam cameras with dalsa with airy on the d20 and the d21 and eventually, over the course of, you know, six, eight, ten years, we evolved most of the cameras that we have today. Wow. That's amazing. I, I mean, I have, there's so much about the evolution of the digital camera then that you were involved in that I want to know more about. But I, I, I think what I want to dive into is black magic and where, you know, where you first started to know about them to work with them and, and kind of where they've developed and where you've landed with them? Well, I, I got familiar with Black Magic when I was first starting to do digital experiments. And you know, I was one of the first users of the, the Thompson Grass Valley Viper camera. 
And I needed a way to ingest that footage and record that footage to hard drives and, and to digital discs. And Blackmagic came out with a series of single link and dual link cards that I could plug into a Mac and actually record the camera without one of the, the crazy standalone recorders that were being built for it at the time. So I started those experiments very early using Blackmagic technology. And I used a lot of, of Blackmagic capture cards and, and continued to buy those over the years. Ultimately, to my delight, Blackmagic got into color correction when they bought DaVinci and, and they right. put out DaVinci Resolve. At the time, uh, I'm, I think I may have been the only guy in Hollywood who had a rank telecine with a DaVinci Renaissance 888 in my garage. <laughs> a dear friend of mine who is a cinematographer, VFX guy, came over to visit me at the house once, and I said, well, I'm kind of in the middle of something. Come on down to the garage, and, and you can look over my shoulder while I'm working. And he walked in and saw a full-on rank telecine and a Da Vinci Renaissance 888, and he said, my God, you, you've got a full-on color suite down here. <laughs> uh, who are your clients? And it was the first time anybody had ever asked me that. I, so I turned around and I looked at him and I said, I'm the only client. <laughs> I was transferring and color correcting my own film. That's funny. And then what did you start <laughs> from there? Were you doing it more for others or did you just continue to have no, it be when, your... when HD got underway, uh, I started sending my film out for HD scans because my telecine was just a standard deaf telecine. Right. And I started using DaVinci Resolve Digital to, to do all of my color corrections. So... Uh, I get rid of the the rank and the Renaissance eight eight eight. Yeah. So you know, and now, I mean, what are where what do you use now? I mean, I assume you're you're obviously fluent with everything, but tell me about the tools you would take out on a shoot if you're shooting something. And tell me about the workflows that you prioritize or that you ideally utilize. Well, I think. Uh, you know, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think that in the early 2000s, around 2001, 2002, 2003, me and Joe DiGennaro kind of invented the position of DIT. And I did a show in, uh, I want to say it was 2004, with four Vipers. And the Viper was a 10-bit a log camera. Mm -hmm. And in order to view log footage on set, you had to apply a transform to it from the original Viper gray-green look to a right. Red 709 monitor required a, a box. So I ordered from Technicolor four or five of these boxes called Luther boxes. And... They didn't even have enough to supply me when I first started using them. They had to build more units and ship them to me so that I could do all of the transforms on set. And so when 
when I did that, it was it was kind of a way to pioneer doing, uh, you know, creating the position of DIT on set, or at least DIT as we know it now, who manages mm-hmm. the look and transforms uh, right. raw footage. So there's into, nobody to do that? Or you couldn't have had like, yeah, there's nobody there to do that job. So you you decided we'll we'll come up with or we'll start hiring someone to do this and then sort of snowball. It, it wasn't even a job. I just decided I've got to do this or I, I can't show the signal to a director. Right. And I can't post produce it properly if I don't sit right. down with some software, uh, assimilate Scratch, and write some transforms to output the footage and then capture it and so when you know when black magic started building LUT boxes that i could afford to buy instead of renting from uh, technicolor i started buying those as well and slowly but surely all of this evolved into hardware that was real and usable and practical you know right (laughs) lut boxes recorders compression schemas monitors there was there was a burgeoning hardware manufacturing uh, business that grew up around camera guys you know my friends and guys like me who were trying to shoot with these cameras and who were saying to the manufacturers, I need something that does this. I need something that does that. Yeah. Because uh, you were trying to, the, you were trying to create the best quality digital productions or images, but you needed a workflow to support all these aspects. So they kept needing to build new things essentially. Right. And it, it evolved very quickly. Very, very quickly. And I have to say, Black Magic were very nimble at evolving it. One thing that I always told hardware manuf- manufacturers that I worked with in requesting stuff like this was uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Hmm. And so does my cat. <laughs> <laughs> when you mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But the point is that if you can articulate, intelligently articulate your need, inevitably somebody sees the business sense in it, goes away and builds the thing you need, and comes back with it and as a product, and off you go. And, and that has been happening in digital cinematography for 21, 22 years for me. And it seems like it's like increasing its rate to me, at least. Like it seems like it's it's faster and faster. How how there's new things coming from multiple places, and they're adjusting better to the needs of the digital cinematographer. Yes, um, the, it iterates you, much faster. Yeah, it's it's hard to keep up, in, from my perspective. But what are you looking at? You know, 
like, what do you see as like the next things that are the big needs that are going to be filled? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> is that too hard to, to pin down? Or like if you, if, if you were talking now or what are the recent things where you talk to places like black magic and you say like, Oh, this is great. Now here's the, the next thing that I might. Need. Well, they've, they've been great leaders in driving the technology. I have one of the new 12 K cameras and it has a fourth color photo site, which is a, uh, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, you would call it a white photo site, but it's a contrast photo site. So you've got red, green, blue, and contrast. And I applaud them for pioneering down that path. It's the first production digital cinema camera that has taken the step, dipped a toe in the waters of multispectral imaging. And I expect that in the next few years, we will see more cameras and displays headed down the path of multispectral imaging. I don't know anything that hmm. nobody else cool. knows, uh, right? Other than than what I see in programs like Baylor University's multispectral display program, where they're creating LED displays that show RGB YCM, and I know that that reduces the metamorism in images for a viewer. So I kind of expect that we'll be headed down the multispectral path. Cool. Yeah, that's exciting. And as far as like what you're using, what are you using right now? What are you shooting on? What are you editing on? You're mainly with Resolve. You're using yes, a lot of absolutely. Resolve. I've, I've, if you could see my office here, I've got uh, one side of the room is work computers that I use for writing and emailing and spreadsheets and, and PowerPoints. And the other side of the room is a huge DaVinci Resolve system. Oh, cool. <laughs> so that's the main force. <laughs> yeah. I, I think in the edit wars, Resolve is, is winning. It, the new edit tools in Resolve are really, really powerful. I've stopped trying to edit in anything else. And the availability, right? It's, gonna, it's availability to people to learn on is a massive advantage just because so many people can come up developing those skills. Absolutely. And uh, when you learn something like a nonlinear editor, it becomes sense memory. It, you know, it becomes like riding a bicycle. You just automatically know where the hotkeys are for everything. Right. And once once you acclimate to it, there's you know it's very difficult to learn a different system. But I've learned how to use uh, Resolve for this purpose, and the th nice thing that I feel is that they're going to be here for a while, and and that this is going to continue to be an improving tool because they are committed to the tool set and they are committed to what they're doing. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was really fun. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Please check out all this stuff and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. Be sure to 
leave a comment, send us questions. If you want your question on our weekly show, which drops on Thursdays and rate the podcast, subscribe to it, like it, hate it, whatever you want to say about it. Let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to make it better based on what you're interested in, but don't forget that black magic week is still going on. There's tons of content. There's a contest. There's a chance to win camera. So check it all out. And as always, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.